Welcome to the IBM Podcast Network. I had a strange dream the other day. I dreamed I died and went to heaven. I was met at the gates by Saint Peter, dressed in a flowery T-shirt and Bermuda shorts with a map of Bermuda on them. "What's up, dude?" he asked me. "Are you ready for heaven?" "Yes, yes, yes," I said breathlessly. "I am very much ready for heaven. I can't wait to see what it's like." Saint Peter started laughing. "Ha ha ha! Ha! Even I can't wait to see what it's like." "What do you mean?" I asked Saint Peter. "Surely you of all people know what it's like, don't you live here?" Saint Peter said, "Oh, I live here all right. But you see, we are moving with the times. Now we customize heaven for you. You won't get the default version of heaven, but a customized one. Whatever your idea of heaven is, that's what you'll get." So tell me what's your idea of heaven I was damn excited by this Okay uh, here's my idea of heaven I said to St Peter I want great weather cool and sunny and breezy I want seafood platters everywhere I want lots of bacon I want to see movies all day beautiful music whenever I want I want adoring women to fawn over me just as it was back on earth and also yes I want no possessions Saint Peter scratched his hipster beard. No possessions? he asked. No, I said. No one should own anything, just like in the John Lennon song Imagine. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Ha! said Saint Peter. I'm amazed how many people ask for that. Your heaven is going to be kind of crowded. Okay, walk right in. I walked into heaven and it was exactly as I had asked for. Lovely weather, seafood platters everywhere with bacon on them, amphitheaters advertising the best of world cinema, an adoring woman circling around looking at me from a distance with lust in their eyes. I decided they could wait though as I reached out for a delectable golden fried prawn from a seafood platter just near me. I picked it up and was just about to put it in my mouth when a hand came and snatched the prawn away. The hand belonged to a naked man who put the prawn into his mouth and gobbled it up. "What are you doing?" I asked. "That was my prawn." "No it wasn't," said the guy. "No possessions, bro. Everything here belongs to everybody." I reached out for another prawn, and another hand of another naked guy grabbed the prawn away from me, and then a bunch of naked men jumped upon the seafood platter. "What the fuck?" I shouted. "I want seafood. This is supposed to be heaven. Why are all of you naked?" One of the naked men looked at me and said, "No possessions, bro." Welcome to the seen and the unseen, our weekly podcast on economics, politics, and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to the seen and the unseen. Today's episode is about a subject that's really close to my heart: the right to property. It's actually the underpinning of all other rights, and yet. It's not taken seriously enough in India, so much so that it's not even a fundamental right in our constitution, though it started off that way. To discuss that, I have with me on the show Shruti Rajgopalan, an economist and lawyer who teaches economics at Purchase College in the State University of New York. She is a constitutional expert and has just embarked upon a series of eight essays on the right to property for the online magazine that I edit, Pragati, at ThinkPragati dot com. 
You can find them in our opinion section or by searching for her name. And I'm delighted that she could make time to be with us on this show today. Shruti, welcome to the scene and the unseen. Hi, Amit. It's really great to be here. Shruti, let me start by asking you, what is the right to property and why is it so important? So, I'll answer that question in two short parts. There's a philosophical aspect to the right to property. And this comes from, uh, you know, the Lockean concept of natural rights that individuals should enjoy the fruits of their labor. So an example of that is, say you own a piece of land and you grew apples on that land, right? You have the right to enjoy that land and the apples that come from it. Now, this has a natural right sort of aspect to it, but it's also very practical and commonsensical uh, in that society cannot flourish or prosper if people don't invest their labor. And unless you have the right to property, there is no incentive for anyone to invest their labor. And that's really where the concept of the right to property comes from. Now, the second aspect to it is the right to property in the constitutional sense. Now, this is really... Uh, not so much the right to property to enjoy it in itself, though that's the main goal of it. It is more a protection against arbitrary action by the government to take away your property or take away enjoyment of that property. So uh, if you go back, uh, you know, it's a it's a fairly well-established idea. You see this in, uh, you know, Federalist Papers, uh, Madison in number 51 says that, one, we need to empower the state and then you need to create a system where you oblige the state to control itself. So in a modern civilized society, uh, you need particular kinds of state action. Sometimes that involves regulating property. Sometimes that might even involve uh, compulsorily acquiring property. But the idea is that we still need to constrain the state from any kind of arbitrary action. And the right to property as a constitutional right provides for that. So it's that the government has the right to take property, but there are a lot of restrictions on that right. In fact, this is a point that is often lost in the discourse here in India, that the point of a constitution is not to grant rights to the people, but instead to recognize those rights, protect those rights, and put restrictions on the state Uh, regarding what it can do with those rights? Absolutely. Uh, I feel like the word right has become like a rhetorical device or a punchline, not just in the context of property, but in the context of all rights. Rights are absolutely meaningless unless they are enforceable. And I'll give you a little bit of, uh, when we're talking about the history of property rights, I'll talk about how the founding fathers thought about it, the framers in India and the founding fathers in in the United States thought about enforceable and non-enforceable rights. And uh, you're absolutely correct in that if the state doesn't invest in actually enforcing that right and protecting the individual, saying that one has the right to free speech or one has the right to free assembly is absolutely meaningless. So I'm going to ask you now about the history of property rights in India and how our founding fathers looked at them. But before that, I'd also sort of like to make an additional point that in an economic sense, a world without property rights is impossible because of scarcity, because there is essentially a scarcity of everything. You need property rights, otherwise you would have chaos and anarchy. Absolutely. So I'd just like to elaborate because I think you raise a very valuable point. So when I was talking about the apple orchard, 
I meant in a very basic sense that, you know, all systems have to be incentive compatible. If you don't have the incentive to grow the apples, which you wouldn't if you couldn't enjoy them at the at the end of the growth period, uh, then you really wouldn't bother to do it and there would be no apples. Now, in the broader sense of how do we ec- uh, organize economic activity, this kind of a system of property uh, can be contrasted with a system of no property, which is socialism. And the biggest problem with socialism, which you correctly pointed out, eventually ends up in chaos is if you don't have property rights in a world of scarcity, and we know that's the reality of the world, we live in a world of scarcity, without property rights, you can't get, you you don't know what the opportunity cost is of each and every action that is taken with respect to that property, right? So only I know whether it is better for me to grow apples on a particular piece of land or uh, build a mansion on a particular piece of land. And only I understand that relative trade-off for myself. Now, if you don't have that idea, that relative trade-off for oneself or what we call opportunity cost, you can't get exchange ratios, which in modern terms are prices, right? So I wouldn't know how to trade with you Uh, whether I should sell that piece of land to you, whether I should make a mansion for myself or whether I should grow apples. And without prices, you cannot have any calculation of property, um, of uh, profit and loss, which means as a society, when socialist planners plan, they have no idea if you want to make more apples or you want to make more homes. And that's really what ends up in chaos. So this problem of socialist calculation, which is now very, very well established in economic science and mainly the demise of communist systems and socialist systems, the root of that goes back to the right to property. Exactly. And, and, and the whole existence of a market and of prices and so on depends fundamentally on the right to property. And a market is essentially what is it? It's uh, the embodiment of the voluntary exchanges that happen in society where we all interact with each other for mutual benefit. And if you don't have the right to property as a fundamental underpinning of that, society breaks down. I have a really uh, ironic uh, example for you. Uh, so we know that... Uh, In a modern sense, the greatest advocate of abolishing uh, private property was Karl Marx, right? Uh, The really hilarious fact is if you were to visit Karl Marx's grave today, there's an entry fee (laughs) to see the grave. And a lot of his fans and supporters protested that, unsurprisingly. And um, the reason it was revealed was because no one has an incentive to maintain the site where his grave is if he didn't charge for an admission fee. So even Karl Marx's grave cannot be protected without the right to private property and without charging for it. So that tells you something about the way the world needs to work. Even the most ardent communist fans will free ride and not invest if there is no such requirement. I'm going to resist the temptation to express my schadenfreude here, getting on with the podcast. So tell me then, what is India's history with the right to property? Did our founding fathers at the time of, um, you know, framing the constitution, give it due importance in your opinion? And what what was then the general thinking around it? Um, So the first time you see any kind of like, um, uh, you know, something that mimics a constitutional right to private property uh, kicks in in the 1935 Government of India Act. 
Okay. Uh, Article 299 in that had something uh, quite similar to the American clause, which is, you know, you don't take property without compensation and without due process. That's the general idea. And it needs to be for public use. Like these are the three main components. However, it was the colonial government and these weren't fundamental rights and they weren't enforced with the same force as they are in other jurisdictions that are not colonial that did have those rights. So it was more of lip service. Uh, Immediately after that, we know that uh, there are two things going on with the colonial government. One is they were extensively building railways. And after that, when the war broke out, they needed to acquisition and requisition property to go towards the war effort. So even though this article existed, it really wasn't the kind of protection one would seek. So that's really where it all begins. Uh, When the Constituent Assembly formed, um, I must say the framers of the Indian Constitution were intellectuals cut from a different cloth than what we see today. Uh, In that they were familiar with uh, a lot of political and intellectual history, a lot of constitutional history. There were a number of very eminent lawyers and constitutional experts uh, in the Constituent Assembly of India, starting with B.R. Ambedkar, Aladi Krishnaswamy Ayer, K.T. Shah, K.M. Munshi. So they were really big luminaries. Uh, So it's not that they weren't aware of what... uh, police power was or the power of eminent domain was to take property, so on and so forth. However, they were also living in a particular context, which was feudalism, which had perpetuated and persisted over centuries. So one of the main goals was that while we create an equal society, we also need to make uh, the wealth holding or asset holding a little more equitable than what the zamindari system had resulted in. So it was sort of 1% of the population held 99% of the land. And that was not a good way forward when you're thinking of a constitutional democracy. So this is the trap they were in. Uh, There were some socialist uh, leaning members who strongly believed that either there should be no right to private property or it should be extremely diluted. That is, the the power of the government to take property must be extremely broad. Uh, On the other hand, there were members like K.M. Munshi. K.M. Munshi probably is the foremost when it comes to the debates on property because it was um, very, very rigorously debated and it became quite heated. And K.M. Munshi was really uh, what I would like to call the Indian Madison in this particular context. And he pointed out that zamindari and land reform issues aside, you absolutely do not want to give the government, any government, including the Republic of India, that kind of power to have uh, to use arbitrary force against an individual. And he was very farsighted in thinking that the present, that is present generation at that time, in the late 40s, those... um, Members were extremely uh, public serving, uh, extremely public spirited, but future governments will have to be constrained. And uh, the only way to constrain future governments from any kind of arbitrary action would be to have some kind of a restriction on eminent domain or the restriction of the government to take private property. So that is sort of the, the brief history of what happened in the Constituent Assembly. Having said that, 
uh, we didn't get the Madisonian airtight clause. So in the United States, it's very clear that you can only take property for public use. So the phrase is public use and only by providing just compensation. In India, uh, they didn't have a strict public use. So public use became public purpose in the original Article 31 of India. And uh, they didn't have the phrase just compensation. It just became compensation, the standalone word compensation. So that's where it started. And um, it was very clear that the intention of this kind of a dilution was to allow land reform legislation. That was very, very clear. And public purpose included land reform type measures so that it could dismantle the zamindari system. So give me a brief sense of then how a the, the right to property being originally written in the Constitution, the way it was impacted um, uh, you know, our politics and our economy up till the 70s and more critically, how the 44th Amendment came about and what it changed and why that change was important. Okay, so this is going to be a bit of a long answer because we have a very convoluted history with property. So immediately after uh, the Constitution was ratified and signed, uh, we didn't have general elections for another 15 or 18 months after that. So uh, governing the country was a body called the Provisional Parliament, which was really the Constituent Assembly of India, which had transitioned into what was called the Provisional Parliament. Uh, Nehru was the Prime Minister, and this was pending elections, which happened in phases in 1951 and 52. Uh, so the constitutions ratified in January 1950, and from, say, 1948 to 51, in that period, all the provinces started passing land reform measures, okay? And uh, land reform measures were your typical, like, you know, meant to be Robin Hood, take from rich zamindars, distribute to poor peasants who were landless but had a very strong tie to that land for a very long time. That was the intention behind it. However, the Constitution doesn't allow you to do that without providing compensation. So some of these laws ran into trouble immediately in the courts because they didn't provide for a suitable compensation mechanism. So, for instance, um, the law in Bihar was compensating uh, rich zamindars only at three times the assessed value and poor zamindars at 20 times the assessed value. Right. Uh, so that breaks uh, or violates Article 14 in principle, which is equal protection. So these are the sort of problems that ran into. So either there were laws that were directly violating Article 31 or they were violating one of the other fundamental rights. Um, Article 31, I must still say in the early 50s, the judiciary gave it a very broad reading and almost all the judges were on the same page that you need some kind of land reform and Article 31 allows it. But running into trouble with other fundamental rights was very, very problematic. So this is the context in which one starts thinking of what do we do to save this provision and how do we move forward as a constitutional democracy? So I'd like to, so I'd like to, I'd like to make a brief sorry. digression here before you go ahead. Uh, yeah. It's not really the subject of the, the this episode per se, but what do you think of la those land reforms? Um, 
or conceptually of land reforms per se, you know, breaking down the zamindari system and redistributing land? So, of course, conceptually, I think the zamindari system or any kind of, you know, class or caste system that is perpetuated is incredibly wrong. And it goes against all liberal principles and liberal values. Having said that, there are many, many unintended consequences of breaking down a zamindari system. Uh, so first off, a lot of the measures... Now, you must remember that the zamindars were extremely sophisticated, rich, and had huge means at their disposal to fight the battle legally and otherwise. Uh, the poor landless peasants were quite clueless, okay? And in the midst of all this, there are always bureaucrats to act opportunistically. So in most states, either land reforms didn't happen or they were extremely unsuccessful in that the intended beneficiary didn't actually get the land. So there would be a few different types of scams that were running. So um, before, like you knew that the legislation had been enacted. Uh, so the zamindars would quietly start changing their records and start showing that the land actually belongs to their wife's first cousin their brother's second son, so on and so forth, and try to remove any record of the peasant's family from the rolls. So this was one scam that was going on. It was fraudulent, but it was an unintended consequence of this kind of legislation. The other thing that was going on uh, simultaneously was that we didn't have very good records of the intended beneficiaries. The intended beneficiaries were steeped in the zamindari system. They never wanted to be disloyal to the zamindar family. So they didn't really fight for their rights and actually acquire the land that was supposed to be distributed to them. So these were two things going on. So one of the consequences was it never really went to the person it was intended to go to. The other consequence, which in a broader economic sense was very problematic, was India broke down large size land holdings into small land holdings. And we all know that small land holdings are not so productive, right? So what would have been an ideal way to do things should have been to move a very large population of landless peasants, transition them into other sectors of the economy, as opposed to trapping them in agriculture with very small land holding systems. So because the zamindar started breaking up land and giving it to their family members to escape this kind of taking from the government, and any point when the peasant did get the land, it was a very small piece of land, agricultural productivity just plummeted in post-colonial India. Uh, if you remember, in the 50s, after that, because agricultural productivity plummeted, there were a series of um, laws passed by various states which put a floor on the minimum size of land. That is such a bizarre thing. You have a ceiling on the minimum size of land and a floor on the maximum size of the land, right? So these were sort of the bizarre unintended consequences. You needed to pass more and more legislation to make the previous legislation work. So you had very small size of holdings and then the government says this is too small. You need to make it bigger. If you made it too big, you will run into the zamindari laws. So they had to cut you to size. In fact, we've had past seen and seen episodes on how uh, on agriculture, on how people are essentially trapped in agriculture. And there was a recent uh, episode I did with Vivek Call on Jobs where he made an interesting point that a lot of the recent demands for reservations, whether it's a partidar agitation or the 
ریڈیوسنگٹی بٹ ریگارڈلس All these laws that Nehru's government and the provinces were passing ran into major trouble with the judiciary. So Nehru's government was in a bit of a conundrum. And, you know, this seems now that we're so far removed from that situation, it's hard to understand. But at that time, the constitution was so nascent, it didn't have much legitimacy. You know, uh, the Constituent Assembly hadn't been voted in by adult franchise. It was limited franchise. This was the elite group in India. And Nehru was very worried that if you couldn't do land reform for constitutional reasons, you would either have a revolution like a Maoist style revolution on your hands or people would just toss the constitution out. Right. So what is the middle path? You want to do land reform. You want to keep the constitution. What do we do? We don't want to delete the right to private property. We also don't want to get rid of the judiciary. Now, all these options were mentioned. Some were even debated. So the solution, this was partially uh, proposed and supported by Ambedkar, who was the law minister at that time. Uh, the solution was, let's abridge this right a little bit. But the abridging of the right and the exception that we make will only be for Zamindari and nothing else. Okay. So Article 31A kicks in. Article 31A uh, protects the Zamindari land reform agenda from any violations of Article 14, 19 and 31. So 14 is uh, the equality clause, 19.1F is the right to hold and dispose property, and 31 is the right to property. That is the protection against eminent domain. So this is where they landed. They introduced another interesting provision on which we could do a whole separate podcast called the Ninth Schedule, where they said any law that goes into the Ninth Schedule is completely protected from judicial review. That is, the judiciary cannot throw that law out. even if it violates fundamental rights. Now, even though that's a lot of like technical legalese, what it basically says is, if we put a law in that list, it can violate the constitution, specifically the fundamental rights, and there's no, no problem. Thereby rendering so the whole process it. farcical. Yes, uh, but at the same time, everyone felt that this was intended for land reform. And, you know, I remember this, I mean, this is not quoting it verbatim, But Nehru, during the First Amendment parliamentary debates, mentioned at one point, I can't foresee any house, any member of parliament committing a fraud upon the constitution and the country. When he was challenged by people like S.P. Mukherjee that this is just too broad uh, an exception. So these people perhaps genuinely also believed that um, that all uh, politicians are public serving because they're all served in the nationalist movement together. They'd all been in jail together. They'd all given up a lot of personal benefit and wealth to serve the public, to be in the nationalist movement and eventually in government. So they just assumed that people who come to these kind of government posts must be the public spirited cases, which we know how false that is. I think the cognitive bias that Nehru felt for is called the availability uh, heuristic in the sense that because he saw the politicians around him of his generation were so public serving 
and so on, he assumed that politicians through the ages would remain like that, which of course we know is not the case. Yeah, and you know, one has to remember, like if you think about it, Kameshwar Singh, who was the main zamindar fighting all this, you know, he was the guy on the side of property rights that he that it needs to be protected, the constitution needs to be enforced. He was extremely flamboyant. I, I believe he owned hundreds of cars. This is the late 40s. Had very, very, very vast land holdings, you know, vacationed in London and Switzerland. So he wasn't really a good poster boy in a public spirited sense, even though the argument for protection of private property is fundamentally public spirited. Right. So now let's move on through the decades and talk about the 44th Amendment. Absolutely. So immediately after this, uh, the fourth. Uh, so I want to talk about very briefly sure. a case called Bela Banerjee in the 1953-54. This was State of West Bengal versus Bela Banerjee. In this particular case, the government hadn't um, uh, created principles for adequate compensation. So the question came up of what is sufficient compensation? Should compensation be market value? Uh, the idea, this is an American jurisprudential doctrine that you need to be made whole. When state takes your property, which it has the power to do under the power of eminent domain, it can only do so by providing you compensation. And the word compensation means to compensate you for taking that property away, which means you're left about where you would have been had this property been in your hands even now. So, this particular legislation compulsorily acquired property and it did not provide compensation. So the Supreme Court in Bela Banerjee said uh, it threw the law out and it said um, this is inadequate compensation and compensation has to make you whole. So the government passed the Fourth Amendment, which basically said that no law uh, shall be called into question for inadequate compensation. So they were sort of making up the rules as they were going along. There was a socialist agenda that they needed to unroll. All socialism uh, begins with very broad regulation of the economy and therefore regulation of private property. Anytime they ran into this kind of trouble, uh, it went to the courts. And then retroactively, they said, oh, that might have been a bad idea. Now, going forward, we need to make sure that compensation doesn't become a problem so that other states don't run into the same problem West Bengal ran into. So that's sort of how they operated. After the Fourth Amendment, which was 1954, this question kept coming up, this question of inadequate compensation. It came up in the 17th Amendment. Um, there were like small and large uh, tweaks made. The major tweak after that came during the 25th Amendment. So have you heard the name R.C. Cooper? He's a bit of a hero uh, among those who believe in property rights. So R.C. Cooper uh, was the plaintiff in the bank nationalization case. So in 1969, during the commanding heights, when Indira Gandhi decided that we need to go towards not like mixed economy kind of socialism, but full-blown socialism, she slowly started nationalizing all the sectors in the economy. Uh, one of the sectors which is particularly difficult and tricky to nationalize is banks because the flow of funds can happen overnight. So while you're passing legislation and so on and so forth, banks might just empty their coffers or move the money into a non-bank institution and things like that. So any kind of bank nationalization when it is done is a complete surprise. So she announced it through an executive order 
and then passed law giving validity to the executive order about two weeks later. So bank nationalization essentially nationalized private banks in India. R.C. Cooper challenged this as a shareholder of one of the banks, saying that he had not been adequately compensated for taking of property. So nationalization of bank is also a takings, right? So R.C. Cooper is a very important case in Indian jurisprudence because, number one, it recognizes all forms of property, including the rights of shareholders and debtors, etc., as property that comes within this Article 31 framework. The second thing was R.C. Cooper, uh, the court said in the majority opinion that the government did not provide adequate compensation. It did not make these people whole. But you must remember, that's the precise point of bank nationalization, right? The government's treasury is running low. It wants to, one, appropriate the wealth of the banks, two, have access to a credit system where it can do all these loan waivers and, you know, all sorts of things like mess around with the credit system and subsidize credit to favored groups. So that's sort of the intention of bank nationalization. So given that that's the intention, there is no way they create a compensation system that will benefit people and make them whole. So let me let me ask and you. A, court, let me ask you a new. Sorry. Let me interrupt you and ask you a newbie question. Then, uh, how did they determine the compensation that was to be given to the holders of those banks? Well, that's the thing. They left. So depending on which particular case or which legislation you're talking about, they left the principles extremely vague. Sometimes the laws would say the principles to be determined by the executing authority. Okay. So the law, the legislation itself will not prescribe principles. Sometimes it would just come up with an arbitrary amount, let's say 100 rupees per share or something like that, and not provide any justification or principle for why 100 rupees is the compensation that you decided to give when the share was trading in the market for, say, 1,000 rupees. So I'm just making up these numbers. These are not actual numbers from the cases, but just to give you a sense of what was going on. Very arbitrary. So what was the ruling in the R.C. Cooper case? So the ruling in the R.C. Cooper case was against the government. So that's the broad thing. There were many, many sub issues that were discussed in the R.C. Cooper case. The fundamental point being what is the definition of property? What is public purpose and what is compensation or adequate compensation? Now, interestingly enough, Indian jurisprudence has been very or rather there is no doctrine on what public purpose is. So this might shock you, but when you look at case after case on uh, the right to property or pretty much any other regulatory power of the state, the Supreme Court has sort of deferred to parliament. What I mean by that is public purpose is whatever parliament says is public purpose. Wow. So if the legislation says that it is in the public interest to regulate the banking system, then it is in the public interest. Like courts won't interfere with what constitutes as public purpose or public interest policy. They are merely going to say, see that once you have declared that this is in the public interest, are you following due process or like proper procedure to determine principles of compensation, so on and so forth. So on the question of public purpose, not only was R.C. Cooper weak, but every case in India has been hopeless on that particular issue. Consequently, India has no doctrine of public interest or public purpose. And by doctrine, I mean like a principle or a rule that is consistently applied by courts. Um, 
On that, it was weak. Can you can you on contrast question, this? Can you contrast this with, say, the U.S., which does have such a doctrine, and you know what the implications of that? Well, are? so the U.S. also has seen very bad times recently, but initially in the United States, public use meant something very close to public goods. So, like roads, which is, railways. you know, typically roads, dams, railways. These are situations where one individual property holder might create a holdout. That is, you know, one person whose farmland is affected by the the rail line might hold out and not sell that property to the government or to the rail company, and that is going to stop uh, the rail company or the government from laying down a line that would bring a huge amount of prosperity to the whole region. But obviously, one or two people are bearing the cost, so they hold out. So the purpose of eminent domain was to prevent these kind of gridlocks or holdouts. But it was restricted only to public use. So there are a few types of goods, like say roads or dams, which typically face what we call the collective action problem. A lot of people need to come together to make that work. A lot of little pieces of land. Uh, in India, you see this problem over and over again with dams and the catchment area. Right, the moment you build a dam, the catchment area of the river overflows, and all the people who have land near the river bed. Are going to be affected by it because their land is now underwater. So you see this problem over and over again. China has solved the problem of dams by being a communist state, right? Uh, the United States solved that problem using eminent domain but providing full compensation. The Indian government, in its nascency, had a bankrupt treasury. So even if they wanted to fulfill the, these constitutional principles, they didn't have the money to provide the zamindars the full compensation. It would have also sort of destroyed the point of the zamindari system. So in India, it was broadened to public purpose. We moved away from the idea of a strict compensation doctrine. So in a sense, the difference between our doctrine back then and what the U.S.'s was was a difference of necessity. Our government didn't have the coffers in any case to provide just compensation. So what do you? Do? I think it was a, a question of necessity, and I think it was also just a slightly flawed ideological vision. Uh, if you really think about when you read the Federalist Papers or when you read George Mason, James Madison. Uh, what you see is a deep understanding of human nature and the idea that power corrupts and absolute power corrupt, corrupts absolutely uh you don't see that in the indian nationalist movement there is recognition of the idea that men may and when i say men i mean all humans uh that individuals may act opportunistically uh but given the context of the nationalist struggle they didn't take that very seriously Whereas in the United States, that idea was taken very seriously and to its absolute logical conclusion, and that's why they had such strong constitutional constraints that were so difficult to amend. And in India, there was, you know, it was it was slippery. There were there were gaps in what they intended and what they wrote. Right. So let's let's get back to the seventies now. Post. Uh, yeah. Post R C Cooper. So, so. So post R C Cooper. Okay. So now you started getting the drift, right? That the biggest problem or the biggest reason that the right to property was under threat was because the government wanted to execute socialism. So socialism and the right to property are obviously fundamentally incompatible. So even though Nehru wanted to do a mixed economy model, not full-blown socialism, not full-blown communism, 
what you essentially get are is something very similar to full blown socialism it just happens gradually right it doesn't happen overnight through revolution it happens gradually through legislation so that's what you see happening in india now we know that in 1975 there were a bunch of unexpected events rajnarayan challenged indira gandhi's election she invoked the emergency now during the emergency um she realized that to protect the seat of power and to make sure that all the power was concentrated in the executive and not separated between executive legislature and judiciary you needed a sort of constitutional reform and her um, and again i'm not going into detail just very broadly her justification for this kind of concentration in of power in the executive was that the government needed to do something for progress and development so this is things like the garibi hatao movement you know abolition of privy purses of uh, nationalizing all kinds of industries so all of these were welfare programs under indira gandhi's agenda and they had mass support at the time before the emergency and a very large part of the 42nd amendment was we completely redraft the fundamental structure of the constitution to really vest the power with the executive and all the other wings of the government are just you know they'll be secondary she was successful in doing that immediately after so 42nd amendment is the worst thing that ever happened to the indian constitution immediately after that however she called for elections and she lost so the janta government came in 1977 78 and they decided that they will undo a lot of the things that the indira gandhi government had done in the 42nd amendment so 43rd and 44th amendment were what i call um, you know a kind of like a restoration process they were trying to make things go back to the pre 1975 needle and uh, they succeeded in all of that except restoring the right to private property and the reason for that was uh, morarji desai's government heavily influenced and supported by jayaprakash narayan was even farther left than indira gandhi's government they were hardcore gandhian socialists who truly wanted to abolish the right to private property the history of this goes back to the constituent assembly jayaprakash narayan protested the right to property even when the constituent assembly had drafted it and he had written to b r ambedkar saying the socialist wing of the congress party is absolutely against this particular provision so needless to say that is the provision that got hacked in 1978 having said that uh, the hacking of the provision or the deletion of the right to property in 1978 was just a formality because the 25th amendment before that you know which was a response to rc cooper had already done a lot of damage the 17th amendment the 4th amendment the 1st amendment so it had already really diluted what a protection from eminent domain power looks like so this was just a formality i will however say what it actually did now in india we say right to property is not a fundamental right it is only a legal right so what the 44th amendment did was it moved the right to property from the fundamental rights chapter that is article 31 and all the follow ups of article 31 and it moved it to a provision called article 300a and article 300 simply says the state shall not take property save for the authority of law what does that mean it means that we have zero protection against any legislation that takes property 
we have some protection if an executive authority takes property without legislation. So uh, what that means is, let's say tomorrow the government passes a land acquisition bill, okay, and says uh, we need to redevelop the South Bangla area, which is where you live, Amit, uh, and all the land in South Bangla area is hereby acquired, and they don't give any compensation or they give very little compensation. Now, in the current scheme of things, we have no judicial recourse to that. Why? Because fundamental rights protect us against actions of the legislature. A legal right under Article 300A only protects us from the actions of the executive. So as long as legislation was passed using proper procedure, the law will hold. Now, what does Article 300A protect us from? It protects us from things like an over-enthusiastic municipality taking over land without any sort of legislation backing it. Uh, many scholars have argued that demonetization was actually a violation of Article 300A. So they say that demonetization should have had an ordinance that was passed with retroactively enacting legislation, which the Modi government did not do. So just passing an executive order and saying 86% of India's currency is no longer valid should have run into trouble with Article 300A had someone challenged it and had the court taken it up. I believe a property rights scholar called Namita Wahi made this argument that the demonetization action was completely unconstitutional because of Article 300A. So you can see that 300A will only protect you from the most extreme cases of arbitrary action but most cases of arbitrary action are now completely allowed when it comes to property. You know, all this talk of amendments, 4th, 17th, uh, 42nd, 44th, just, just reminds me of the observation that our constitution is less of a book and more of a periodical. And, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure even if the 44th amendment wasn't there, uh, it wouldn't really have made much difference. It would, I mean, the right to property would have been constantly breached over the years anyway. But to get get to the crux of the show then what are the unseen effects of the right to property being as diluted as it is today? Okay, so there are a few things. I want to distinguish unseen effects and unintended effects for the moment. Okay, And I'll tell you what I mean by that uh, in a minute. Uh, Though unseen and unintended consequences are very similar in an economic sense, sometimes in a constitutional sense, not so much. So, Let's say you own a printing press, okay, and that printing press is publishing things against the government. Now, you should be protected unless you're doing something against public morality or it's publishing pornographic material, so on and so forth. Technically uh, or constitutionally, your right to free speech is protected by the constitution in India. However, the right to free speech only protects speech. It doesn't protect the press. If the government has the authority to nationalize the press, you lose your right to free speech, but indirectly, right? This is why a lot of property rights scholars say that all rights essentially boil down to the right to private property because right to private property is the way that you get the means to express action that is protected by all the other rights. Similarly, let's say you own a monastery or you run a monastery that is held in a trust. If the government decided that it wanted to build a road where your monastery is tomorrow, it would technically be an infringement on your religious freedoms. But it falls under 
eminent domain power, which we have no protection from. So I'm not saying that courts have not been reasonable. Whenever these kind of cases have come up, the courts have read it broadly and they've talked about the indirect effect and so on and so forth. But you do understand through these examples just how crucial the right to property is. It's not just a, an important right if you're a capitalist or a zamindar or if you run a business. It's an important right for any individual, any citizen in India who wants to live their life and express themselves. So that's the fundamental crux of what we mean by right to property. Now, there are two different kinds of effects. Okay. Now, the unseen effect of diluting right to property is things like it's going to start infringing on other rights, which you didn't exactly foresee. Right. So uh, if the government decides to uh, regulate certain industries, decides to build a road where monasteries used to exist, uh, decides, you know, you see these little temples and mosques in like street corners in India. If the government decides that it's in public purpose to widen the street and it knocks down one of these temples, now where do you go from there? So that is one sort of unseen effect of diluting the right to property, which is all your other rights are suddenly in jeopardy. And that was never the point of all these amendments. Okay. Now, the unintended consequence is much broader and so much more perverse. And here I really want to focus on the word intention. Now, given that we've discussed the history of property rights in India, uh, you know that a very large part of the initial dilution came because of the land reform Zamindari program. However, what it did was it opened up gaps and it weakened the constraints that we have on the state. So as you know, nowadays, all the punchline of every government is that we want development, we want foreign investment, we want domestic investment, we want industry to come into the state, so on and so forth. And to attract industries to come and set up in the state, governments need to provide those industries pieces of land. It's really hard to acquire land in India, and we'll discuss that in a little more detail in a bit. But let's just say it's hard to acquire land privately in India. And now the government has started using this power of eminent domain to take land from farmers and give it to large companies. So if there is a tribal group which is uh, occupying uh, an area which has uh, very rich natural resources underground, then the government nationalizes that land, takes away all the rights of the tribal group and gives it to like a big mining company. Uh, a few years ago, there was a very uh, high profile case uh, in Shingur, where Tata's wanted to set up the Tata Nano factory in Shingur in West Bengal, Mamta Banerjee, who was in opposition at the time, created huge protests and got them thrown out. But what was happening in Shingur and what led to the protests was that the government was taking land away from farmers, not providing them market compensation and putting together the land in large parcels and giving it to Tata, Right. So this is really an unintended consequence, like all the framers must be turning in their grave because this is the precise opposite of what they intended for the beneficiaries. This is actually they a redistribution from the poor to the rich. I call this reverse uh, Robin Hood. That's exactly what it is. So you take land from the poor and you give it to the rich and they are the poor, even though they are the landed poor for various other reasons of how we have shackled agriculture in India. Uh, but that's really what is going on right now. So you see a lot of protests 
by farmers all the time against these big companies and uh, government after government focuses on how it is now a capitalist or a market friendly government but they are still violating the same principles they're taking land from the poor now they're giving it to the rich instead of taking land from the rich and giving it to the poor all without compensation so let's take a step sideways and and talk about agriculture i mean if you think about it one of the big reasons agriculture is in such a mess today is that people are essentially trapped in agriculture without an escape route and one reason for that is the right to property they yeah. are not allowed to sell agricultural land for non agricultural purposes so okay so i think liberalization of agriculture is a really big topic there are lots and lots of restrictions that came into the agricultural sector under the guise of protecting farmers but what they did was that they really messed up agriculture i want to focus on one or two of these kinds of regulation sure. as opposed to talking about the entire agricultural sector now in india we have a number of restrictions on agricultural land so you have restrictions in many states that you can't sell agricultural land to someone who is not a farmer the second is any time you want to use agricultural land for any other use you need something uh, called a change of land use certificate sometimes it's a single certificate sometimes it's a number of licenses so this is a state subject so it varies from state to state okay uh now what this does is let's say you're a farmer and we know that if you have a small land holding size in india as a farmer you're not doing very well if you have a bad crop or a bad season or let's just say you're sick of being a farmer you don't want to do that anymore you think there are more opportunities in the broader economy which have nothing to do with agriculture what would you logically do you would take your farmland you would hope to sell it get the money from that either invest it in your next venture or put it away as savings while you retrain or retool yourself to merge with the non agrarian economy now what these laws do the laws that say you cannot sell agricultural land to a non farmer is they suddenly shrink the market for your asset and when they shrink the market for your asset they basically drop prices of where your asset can be priced So now if it's all demand and supply if there were 30 people who could buy your land the price would have gone up if there were only 3 people who can buy your land the price goes down we must remember that a lot of other farmers are in the same situation as the, this farmer exhibit a who is hoping to exit agriculture they barely have the means to um, make their agricultural enterprise work let alone buy the neighbor's farm So you've really sort of restricted the market so much you've almost made it irrelevant. So now what do we do? You can't exit agriculture. Now let's say I can't exit agriculture, but I have my land, maybe I can't sell it, but maybe I can use my land for something else. Okay? Now there's a problem with that also. You need to go to the government and request a change of land use certificate. Now Amit, I've heard podcast after podcast of your seen and the unseen every time there's a regulation what kind of corruption and rent seeking it encourages right so i don't really need to go into detail for you or the listeners on what a change of land use certificate licensing requirement might do there are a lot of middlemen a lot of bureaucrats who try to take that cut so now a farmer is in a position where he can neither sell his land nor easily convert the land to a different use like a small industry or a bed and breakfast or something else 
So this is what I mean by agriculture is shackled and and farmers are trapped in a very low productivity, uh, high-risk environment. So that's where we start. Uh, I just want to digress a little bit at this point. There is a difference between regulatory takings and actual takings. Uh, This is more a distinction in the United States jurisprudence. This distinction really doesn't exist in India, uh, given that we barely have any protection from actual takings. But the idea of regulatory takings is the government has broad police power to regulate the economy, right? So some of these regulations are reasonable, such as zoning laws, saying that you can't have an industry which is... uh, which makes a lot of noise or which has a lot of pollution to be in the middle of the city. So certain laws that regulate the use of property are considered reasonable. However, if you regulate the use of property such that you deprive the property holder from most or all of the economic benefit, then it's called a regulatory taking. What that means is that the legislation didn't actually physically take the land away but they created regulation or restrictions such that it's almost as if they took the land away. So an example of that in American cases would be something like, uh, let's say a property uh, a zoning law said you need to have uh, 100 square feet of uh, trees planted on your property before you build a house. Now, if your property is only 100 square feet, then the zoning law interferes with your enjoyment of your property, right? There's no way you can build a house on that property. So that would be an example of regulatory takings. Uh, There are similar examples for beachfront properties, you know. A lot of it has to do with environmental regulation in the United States. Let me me try to illustrate your point by coming back to the Indian farmer. Yeah, so in the Indian case, uh, sorry, I'll just finish this and then uh, you can jump in. So in the Indian case, when you say that a land cannot be used for non-agricultural use. And right now, non-agricultural use is the primary value emanating from that land. Agricultural use is extremely depressed, either because that land is no longer productive or that what you're growing is no longer valuable or the size of the holding is too small, so on and so forth. The regulation is almost as if you took the land away without actually taking the land away. So the change of land use certificate in some places which are where, you know, you're kind of semi-rural going into sort of some kind of small urban transition, maybe four to five X. Uh, When you're talking about places surrounding big cities like uh, Mumbai or Delhi, like outskirts of Gurgaon, a change of land use certificate can yield up to 40 X the value of the original piece of land for its farm use. That is the difference that we're talking about. So let me illustrate this for my listeners by, uh, you know, taking a hypothetical farmer. Let's say I'm a hypothetical farmer and I own a small piece of land, which if the market was open and I could sell it to anybody for anything would be worth 40 lakhs. But because the market is restricted and I can't sell it for non-agricultural purposes and I can only sell it to another farmer, uh, it's not worth 40 lakhs, it's worth 1 lakh to use uh, the 40x which you gave me. So what therefore happens is that if I was allowed to sell it to anyone, a Tata who wanted to set up a nano factory would come to me and offer me 40 lakhs. But here what is happening is because they are not allowed to do so, the government becomes almost a necessary intermediary by the existence of this law. So the government has to acquire the land from me 
and while they should give while the just compensation in real terms would be the notional 40 lakhs i would have got from tata directly uh the actual market price per se because the market has been so restricted is 1 lakh so the government can give me 1 lakh call it just compensation and give that land worth 40 lakhs to tata and all the value is captured by that intermediary which is basically theft yeah so i want to add another layer to what you just said you know uh so it might seem like tatas are getting a great deal out of this right on the face of it it's like oh tatas would have had to pay 40 lakhs for the value of land now they just have to pay 1 lakh look at how terrible the law is it supports the rich capitalist it's against the farmer that's partially true but the problem is the tatas also cannot acquire land in a reasonable way in this kind of an economy the reason is that at, so let's say tatas start acquiring land the first few pieces of land go for 1 lakh they're the most desperate farmers right but Amit Verma is smart. Amit knows that if he holds out long enough, then Tata would have acquired enough land that his piece of land is now suddenly even more valuable than 40 lakhs because his land is uh, right next to it or right in the middle of it or something like that. So now, while we are haggling over price, there are holdout problems. But a holdout problem when you have this kind of disparity in land use is much more magnified. So now there is basically no sensible way of pricing that asset even before the holdout. And after the holdout, you're in big trouble. So what happens is even large capitalist firms become very soft targets when they are trying to assemble land in this kind of a system. So India is really funny. We're trapped in a world where farmers are dying to sell their land and get out of agriculture. Okay, and we're in a world where rich firms, developers, corporations are dying to buy land to set up industry. However, we can't agree upon the price of land. That seems really weird. Indians are very good at haggling. Why is it that we can't agree upon the price of land? The reason is there's a dual pricing system, one system before you get the certificate, one system after you get the certificate. So it's, it's uh, multiple layers of the problem that you described. So it's really interesting that while in a free market, you'd have a positive sum game. The farmer would sell it at the market price to the industrialist. The farmer would benefit, the industrialist would benefit. But here instead, you almost have a negative sum game where both the farmer and the industrialist are losing value. And that value is going to the middleman. Exactly. So now who could these middlemen be? They are typically people who have a lot of political clout and influence and who actually have access to get that change of land use certificate. Now, let's say, Amit, you are the farmer. You're a very entrepreneurial farmer. You're trying to get out of farming and do something else. You try to sell your land. The selling of the land doesn't work. You try to go to all the babus and get the change of land use certificate. It doesn't work because they want so much in bribes that it's you just don't have the ability to pay them. And you can't raise credit from the banks because the value of your land is at the bottom most price, right? So it's not like your land is actually worth 40 lakhs. So you can raise that money with using the land as collateral and bribe the babus. Now you just have your land at one lakh. No one's going to give you money even for bribes. So that's the situation you're in. Now, what's going to happen is anyone who has a lot of political connections is who is sure of his ability to get the change of land use certificate can actually exploit this situation. And I don't know if you remember about five years ago, 
I think in 2012-2013, a very uh, public-spirited uh, IAS officer called Ashok Kemka exposed a similar scam that was going on in Gurgaon. So Robert Vadra, who belongs uh, to the Nehru Gandhi family, he is uh, married to he's Sonia Gandhi's son-in-law, uh, he had a firm called Skylight Limited. What Skylight Limited would do, it was running many, many, many fraudulent uh, operations. I just want to uh, zero in on one of them. So what Skylight Corporation was doing was it was having very strange transactions with DLF, which is the largest developer in Gurkham. When you start looking into those transactions, what you see is DLF would uh, lend money to Skylight to buy a piece of land. Skylight would buy that piece of land. Within four to six weeks of buying the piece of land, the value of that land would just shoot up. And then it would sell that piece of land back to DLF for a huge price. So what you see is, let's do this with numbers. Let's say there was a piece of land that Robert Vadra's company acquired at one crore. Okay, So the first one crore is given as a loan from DLF to Skylight. Skylight buys the property at one crore. As soon as it buys the property, we know that Robert Vadra must have a lot of political connections. He legitimately gets the change of land use certificate. Okay. As soon as the change of land use certificate kicks in, the value of the property becomes 40 crores. Now he sells that property back to DLF for 40 crores and DLF writes him a check. So now you have two checks. One is a loan for one crore. One is a payment for land for 40 crores. 39 crores is the profit that is taken up as pure rents by a political entrepreneur, which in this case is Robert Vadra, because very, very well politically connected. And this is just a famous scam we've heard of, but this is typically what happens across the country. And Exactly. So now, yeah, and I am not trying to blame a particular individual or a political party. A lot of people are doing this. I'm not even sure it's a scam, really. I don't think it's illegal. I mean, some of the transactions may have been fraudulent, but I don't think it's illegal to take advantage of a change of land use uh, jump in value, right? Anyone who it's has a perversity access to that's... that, it is perverse. But what I mean is the system has created these monsters. Yeah, that's okay? what, it's a perversity which is enabled by bad regulation. Exactly. So if it weren't for this particular instance of a good IS officer like Kimka and a politically connected person like Robert Vadra, who we know because it's so high profile, it could be anyone. It could be Amit and Shruti and it would be the exact same result because someone has to be a middleman. In fact, I would go as far as saying we almost need these middlemen. Otherwise, how would you actually move towards urbanization and development in a country which is so shackled by regulation? There'd be no lubrication in the system. And it bugs me so much when people can conflate this kind of crony capitalism with capitalism. They're completely the opposite things. This is actually not even capitalism. This is crony socialism. Exactly. You have a hangover of terrible socialist regulation which has not yet been repealed you like to say make in India and you want India to be the manufacturing hub and the services hub and so on and so forth you want to rapidly move into a market and capitalist system but you have no legs to stand on because the foundation of a capitalist system is the right to private property so if you don't have that, you're going to get all this kind of perversity. So I want to quickly sum up some of the unseen effects that you've spoken about Number one, 
infringing the right to property or not protecting it sufficiently impacts all other rights because a point i keep trying to make is that every right depends on the right to property you can say i have the right to free speech but where do you express the speech if the government nationalizes all printing presses and owns all the media then it's pointless so the, the to protect the right to free speech you need to also protect the right to property that's unseen effect number 1 all other rights get affected unseen effect number 2 is that it amounts to a form of theft in the sense that uh, as you showed in the case of the farmers who are suffering from the regulation that he can't sell his land the land of the farmer which should be worth say 40 lakhs becomes 1 lakh it's not exactly debt capital but it's comatose capital it's very close to debt capital and he's lost all that value because of bad regulation and furthermore it amounts to theft because you know even when it's not indirectly through regulation is directly through just the government taking the land for a much lower price than what would really be just and i would add a fourth that uh, very often when the original legislation or the constitutional amendment was intended to benefit farmers now it actually goes against farmers the broader point being the moment you give the government arbitrary power it could be used against anyone and tomorrow it could turn against you In fact what i've seen is all the regulation which is made with the intention of helping the poor usually ends up redistributing wealth from the poor to the rich this being a classic example so looking ahead uh, are you hopeful are things ever going to change are we going to start taking the right to property seriously and more importantly is it ever going to be an issue which can animate the masses so that the demand i mean that is the only way anything changes in politics right if there's if there's demand for it from down So I am hopeful about the future in the following sense that I think there are many instances of countries in the world let's say China which don't actually have what we call a de jure right to property which is you know uh, on paper constitutionally protected but which have very good de facto right to property that is the government understands how important right to property is and it respects that So there are many cases even where you have a constitutionally messed up system or no system at all that you could actually get a robust system of property rights bottom up. So in that sense I'm optimistic. Uh a second part that makes me optimistic is that the more wealthy an economy becomes the more um advocates and fighters and activists you have for the right to property. Now remember who was fighting all these cases in the 1950s it was the flamboyant sir kameshwar singh why his property was threatened right he wasn't a public spirited person he was a self interested person who was fighting to keep his land so as india becomes more prosperous and maybe through some other mechanisms as b- small businesses grow into big businesses so on and so forth i'm hopeful that more and more people would become advocates of property because they're no longer living on handouts of the government or a redistribution economy but they actually need their property to survive okay the third reason i'm hopeful is that uh, in a rhetorical sense landless farmers whose land has been taken away and given to the big bad capitalists make for a great poster child and rhetorical device than sir kameshwar singh did so i'm hopeful that going forward in the future i anticipate a lot of taking of land from poor farmers and maybe that will lead to a new kind of uh, uh, agitation or activism in favor of property rights so those are the things that make me hopeful 
What makes me pessimistic is any kind of reform in India is extremely slow. And right now, if you have the money, you can escape a lot of the bad loopholes of the system and sort of carry on. So the only people who are truly affected by this terrible system are the poor. And uh, in, in an everyday sort of sense. And it's really hard for the poor to fight their regular economic battles and then also fight legal and constitutional battles. So some kind of attention between these two forces socially will eventually take us where we're going to end up. But I am partially hopeful. Shruti, it's been really illuminating talking to you. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much, Amit. This was great fun. For more insight on the right to property, check out Shruti's eight-part essay series on the subject in Pragati, the online magazine I edit at thinkpragati.com. You can follow Shruti on Twitter at S. Rajgopalan. You can follow me at Amit Varma, A-M-I-T-V-A-R-M-A. Until next week then, bye-bye. If you enjoyed listening to The Seen and the Unseen, check out another show by IVM Podcasts, Simplified, which is hosted by my good friends Naren, Chuck and Shriket. You can download it on any podcasting network. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is your captain speaking. Sorry to say, but there's been a slight delay due to the apocalypse having suddenly begun. As you can see, there's death, destruction and chaos taking place all around us. But don't you worry, food and drinks will be served shortly and I would recommend checking out IVM Podcasts to get some of your favorite Indian podcasts. We'll keep you going till this whole thing blows over. Thank you.